So there you are on a commute, just like any other day. And you find yourself in your school's parking lot. But as you turn the car off and take the keys out of the ignition, or if you have a modern car, as I've learned, uh, now you don't have keys in the ignition anymore. It's just a button you push. But you have this, this, this rock in your gut. And you have this, this thought, this feeling that is just bugging you. You can't get it out of your head. And, and the idea is that, you know what? If I'm honest, these kids, our students, they don't even have a chance. If you knew that that was the current reality, but you had it within you, right? Because you're a ruckus maker. You're an out-of-the-box thinker making change happen in education. You knew you could turn it around. Where would you start? In today's conversation with Chancellor Gilliam of University of North Carolina, Greensboro, they partnered uh, with the school, the the Moss Street Partnership, uh, and they turned it around. So we're going to hear their story of what school turnaround looked like. And I I highly encourage you to listen to the end because the second half of the show, we dig into this idea of authentic leadership and Personally, for me, it was incredibly rewarding uh, to hear the chancellor's view on, on this topic. Hey, it's Daniel, and welcome to the Better Leaders, Better Schools podcast. And we'll be right back after these messages from our show sponsors. Deliver on your school's vision with Harvard's Certificate in School Management and Leadership, an online professional development program that bridges the fields of education and business. Courses include leading change, leading schools, and leading people. Apply today at hgse.me forward slash leader. That's hgse.me forward slash leader. Imagine a tool that allows you to deliver lessons from anywhere, which allows students to connect from anywhere and with any device. And it integrates with tools you already use, like Google Classroom and Microsoft Teams. If you think that sounds too good to be true, I can assure you it's not. That's why I'm proud to introduce you to the Smart Learning Suite online. Learn more at smarttech.com forward slash learning suite. That's smarttech.com forward slash learning suite. All students have an opportunity to succeed with Organized Binder, who equips educators with a resource to provide stable and consistent learning, whether that's in a distance, hybrid, or traditional educational setting. Learn more at organizedbinder.com. Well, hey there, Ruckus Maker. We are joined today by... Uh, Chief Ruckus Maker, you know, a Chancellor Ruckus Maker, and I can't wait to introduce him and and dive into the conversation. Dr. Franklin D. Gilliam Jr. began his tenure as the 11th Chancellor of the University of North Carolina at Greensboro, UNCG, in September 2015. He is the first African-American Chancellor to lead a non-HBCU in the UNC system. Chancellor Gilliam brings to the UNCG a wealth of experience from a career that spans more than 30 years in higher education. During that time, he was Dean of the UCLA Luskin School of Public Affairs, as well as a longtime professor of public policy and political science at UCLA, where his research focused on strategic communications, public policy, electoral politics, and racial and ethnic politics. 
At UNCG, Dr. Gilliam has not only led the campus to record growth, but has also helped build a solid foundation for a very bright future at the university. From working with legislators to secure funding for a $105 million STEM building to establishing a millennial campus designation, which will create the conditions that will drive growth in areas like health and wellness and the creative and performing arts, to increasing diversity among faculty and administration, and to working with leaders on this campus and beyond on innovative student success initiatives, which have been lauded by national foundations and press. Welcome to the show, Chancellor Gilliam. Thanks for having me, Daniel. It is a pleasure. It is my pleasure. You've got great stories, a wealth of wisdom. And so we're going we're gonna to jump right in. When we talked last, you know, you told me this story of visiting a school and there you were in the parking lot with a colleague and you turned to your colleague and you said, you know what, these kids, they don't have a chance. So bring us to that moment and what caused you to say that? So um, a few years back, I think now it's been three years, the North Carolina legislature mandated that of the 17 campuses, those which had teacher preparation programs, should uh, embark on a mission of what are commonly referred to as lab schools. And the idea was that students' performance was lacking because teacher prep was lacking, and that you could kill two birds with one stone by having teachers practice in these lab schools uh, and trying new and innovative curricula and at the same time benefit the kids. So it so happens we have a teacher prep program, actually a quite good one. We were mandated to uh, open such a school. We took on the daunting task of uh, taking over a school in a county north of us that was the historically segregated Title I elementary school. I went there to visit before we actually became engaged and was utterly depressed at what I saw. It was drab, it was gray, it was lifeless, other than behavior problems. The cafeteria was a place I certainly want, wouldn't want my children to eat. And as I was walking out of the building in the parking lot, I turned to one of my staff members and I said, you know, these kids just don't have a chance in hell. And by that, I meant their life chances were so daunting and it was so disheartening because it didn't have to be that way. It doesn't have to be that way. It's all about the society's will, the public's will to invest in the education of its young people uh, and understand that the long-term sustainability of the society is going to rest on how we educate and take care of the next generations. So that, that was, that was um, we, uh, the, the, the good news Dakota, if you will, is that we have been engaged now for a couple of years. You wouldn't recognize the place. It's vibrant. It's colorful. The kids are well-behaved. The cafeteria looks like a place you would eat. And we're slowly making progress on the hardest thing to move with these kids is um, our uh, test scores and various measures. We're interested in their cognitive, emotional, and social development, uh, the whole child, so to speak. And we've developed a curriculum to focus on such. And it's a tough, it's a heavy lift. These kids uh, opt into the school, and these are children who don't have typical, many of them don't have stable family lives, 
or home lives. And so they are sometimes shuttled between households, an aunt, the grandmother, one of the parents, the other parent. And um, we're finding now with remote learning this fall term at, at the lab school, Monastery, that it's been, a, it's been a challenge because the kids just aren't sitting in the spare bedroom, you know, nice to think of middle-class kids that were in the guest apartment, nice and quiet and being able to study. They're studying amidst all kinds of stuff going on. So it's been a challenge, but it's also been rewarding. Yeah, and potentially sharing the same device and all that kind of stuff. It always boggles my mind when you walk into a school and like you said, it's, you know, it's drab, it's it's lifeless. Uh, it's not a place, like you said, that you'd want to send your children or a cafeteria where you'd want them to eat. And I, I don't understand how that can exist when that's like, that's the litmus test, right? Would you put your family in that school? But luckily, like you said, there's a coda, there's there's a turnaround story in with this Moss Street partnership. And I, I'd love to hear about some of the results that you've seen as you've been working with the school. Well, certainly the culture of the school and the community. Parents are more engaged. Students are more engaged. Uh, I've been there several times where they're doing experiments. And these are young kids. These are first and second graders. It's a case through sixth school. They're doing experiments. They're in dance and music classes. They're doing a lot of STEM work. We have faculty who are working up there uh, or developing STEM curricula for elementary school students as part of their research project. And they're trying innovative ways to to encourage the students to become involved with, with the STEM subjects. We have counselors and mental health counselors on site. Again, some we probably are a little bit more robust than similar situated schools across the country. But the fact of the matter is, this is exactly what you need. This is what all schools need. They need to simulate what good schools have, which is parent involvement, high-quality teachers, innovative and energetic curricula, dedicated teachers, and typically a strong principal. Now, people like Miss Chestnut, who who you heard from the students, I think, that said, Miss Chestnut, you know, she don't play. She don't play. That's what they said. I asked them, well, you know, when I went back to the school and the kids were all orderly, and I talked to my little boys and I said, hey, man, I said, um, you guys are really well behaved. Last year I came here, you all were, were acting out. He said, hey, Miss Chestnut, don't play. And they instilled discipline in the kids. Uh, and, and And you can have discipline. And also have creativity coexist. And so when we went to the art and music classes, kids were dancing and singing and drawing, and it, it, it was tremendous. So it's a heavy lift, though, believe me, uh, Daniel, to, and particularly when you're talking on standardized test scores. So somebody could say, well, the proof will be in the pudding, you know, are their test scores going to improve? And, you're, you know, you're asking me, us, the university, to undo probably not only years of neglect and outright discrimination, but but really decades of it. Right. This, uh, you know, and so they're expecting a year or two years that the great university is going to come in and wave a magic wand and solve systemic problems is probably a bit naive. But if you don't try to change it, you know what the outcome will be. We all pay the price down the road, the children, their families, and their communities. So, but, you know, our, we're not in actually the K-12 business. We're in the higher ed business. Uh, but this is our pipeline, right? So we do have a self-interest here. 
And our, and our School of Education does a lot of innovative things. Our faculty are developing lots of innovative ways, for example, to build kits for high school teachers to teach STEM topics, to develop curricula around how do you teach kids STEM and, and test the, the hypotheses about the different models and ways of doing it. So it's a win for us as a university, and I think it's a win for the community. Now, it comes with its challenges. I mean, you know. Yeah, tell me about those. Well, you're in a community they, who have they have lots of reasons to distrust the university from down the road that is seen as a PWI, uh, primarily white institution. Many of the, the folks who've come over, the faculty and the staff from our shop have been white. The students and the families primarily are black. And not surprisingly, there's a lot of mistrust. Then there's just general localism. You know, you guys don't live here. What do you know? And it's the town, it's an age-old town gown rift also, rift. So, you know, all these things work against you and you have to, you know, you, you have to overcome them and convince folks that you're trying to make a contribution to their families and their children. And in particular, from my point of view, we're trying to improve the life chances of these kids. So I don't have to walk out of the school and say, these kids don't have a rat's chance in hell. I walk out of the school and say, you know, hey, there's going to be a good number of these kids who are going to make it. They're going to they're going to continue on. They're going to learn good habits and they're going to be able to get through school and, and get into careers or whether it's a career or get into to higher to college or community college, wherever they want to go, wherever they want to go. So, but as I say, it is our mission indirectly Right. I mean, we're we, we teach in college age or college students. I shouldn't say college age. We have a lot of so-called non-traditional students as well. I'm curious, you know, with, with that kind of challenge in front of you, the distrust, uh, the fact that many of the educators you're sending from your higher ed institution to uh, to the local school might not look like the kids. Right. And reflect their, their culture. Yeah. What were some of those intentional steps that you did to, to build bridges and, and build relationships so you got to the, the foundation of, you know, trust? Which Well, a lot of it was we hired the school's principal and Miss Chestnut went to that school as a child. She's from that community. Now, you know, it's, it's not all peaches and cream, but she, she's uh, very talented and has great sort of street cred, if you want to call it that. And, uh, you know, it's interesting, even when I go there, even though I'm African-American, I think they see me as another suit. You know, I'm not one of them. I'm, I'm another suit. So it probably doesn't matter what color I am. And, you know, communities have a lot of reasons to be suspicious of the suits. So and it's an issue. There's some, you know, don't get me wrong. There's some tensions that you have to deal with. But that comes with trying to, to level up, as the kids say. That's right. You know, I'd love to hear more about uh, a model you were telling me about before called the Integrated Student Success Model. Yeah. So about half of our students are Pell eligible. We have about, I don't know what the right number is, it's something 40 some odd percent first generation. And yet and still, we are ranked number one in the state of North Carolina for social mobility by U.S. News and World Report. So how do we take a population that comes less prepared to college and take them farther than anybody else? 
And what we rely on, we what we rely on is this model of integrated student success that asks the questions: what does a student need academically? What kind of supports do they need? What does a middle or upper middle class kid come to college with already? Right? How to navigate institutions, how to experience they've been other places, books, there's books in the home. I mean, go down the list. So we have to create that network for them, that architecture for them on the academic side. So we have counselors and and peer, we have a lot of peer-to-peer learning with the seniors doing the freshman or the graduate students doing the undergraduate students, teaching them the art of being a student. Some things that more advantaged kids learn innately or come with innately with our kids you know, one young lady told me, I'll tell you a quick story, if you don't mind. She, um, I, I meet her on campus, talking to her. Where are you from? Some small town I haven't heard of. Where is that? Oh, it's up, going up toward the mountains. So how far is it? I says, she says, about 60 miles. I thought, so that's great. I said, you, you know, your family's close. They can come down and visit you. And in my mind, I'm thinking the family's going to come into town. They're going to take her to a steak dinner and buy her a school sweatshirt. And, you know, and she said, uh, she says, no, they, why would they come? And I said, well, what do you mean? And she said, well, you know, I'm the first one out. I'll never forget her words. I'm the first one out. And I said, well, what do you mean? She said, I'm the first one to go to college. She said, my parents drove me up to the corner of the campus and dropped me off with my bags and turned around and went home. And she's now left, and this young lady's now left to navigate. All of it. We're a 20,000 student university. You know, it's not like somebody was waiting there to, but once, so we teach her how to come from a smaller school, blah, blah, blah. So one, the integration is about the academic enterprise and how they navigate that. The second is the finances of being a student, the economics of being a student. How do you make sure you're getting maximum financial aid? How are you making sure that your bills are getting paid on time? How do you piece together a financial package that allows you to sustain yourself economically at the school? And one that discourages or encourages a reduction of student debt, right? It's a kind of educational finance literacy, if you will. (laughs) Exactly. And we we teach that. The third part of of the the, the leg of the stool, if you will, is student well-being. We also understand that there's a person there and they may not uh, understand the culture of higher ed. They may not know what is the one, one, not this fall, but the, the previous fall, I remember asked this young woman on campus, uh, her and this guy are walking. And I said, uh, I said, hey, how you doing? You freshman? Yeah. Where are you from? Some town I, I had not heard of. Said, uh, what you asked them, what's your biggest fear about being freshman? And I thought they were going to say, well, the classes are going to be hard or I won't make any friends or you know what they said? We're really worried about getting lost. Really? And I said, what do you mean getting lost? And they said, well, getting, I don't know the streets. Look, our, we have, our campus is sort of a contained campus. It's not spread out over a bunch of buildings, but her town had two stoplights. Right. You know? Yeah. So, <laughs> so she's just worried about her. Yeah, she thought she'd gone to Manhattan. Right. 
so, and that can be emotionally taxing on it. My point of this is that there's a lot of psychological impacts on students generally, but students who don't come at, prepared with the built-in advantages. So the integration is between the academic, the financial, and the student well-being. That's sort of the secret sauce, if you will. Right. I relate to that story. You know, I have a niece uh, in her first year of uh, uni, as they call it, over in the UK and uh, Maya. And so with they have a hybrid model, right, because of the pandemic. So some classes are in person, some are online. And she was mixing up what days she was supposed to be online and what days to be in the class. But she was horrified, right, that she was uh, dropping the ball on that, what a professor and her peers would think of her, right? right? Like that was her biggest challenge with college, so to speak. Well, and think about a kid who doesn't, who doesn't have a fan. Like my kid would have, if in that situation would have called me up and said, or they would have called any, my wife or any parent up and said, hey, and the parent would have helped them figure it out or told them, hey, you need to go talk to the professor, you know, and explain you got mixed up with your days and blah, blah, blah. You know, a lot of kids come to the, you know, they come to the project with the, idea that you only go and talk to somebody if you're if you're in trouble if you've done something wrong yeah as opposed to realizing they're there to support your educational progress I, look our job is to get you to graduate that's right so we uh, we need to do everything we can to help you graduate um i taught at ucla for 29 years and there were two kinds of students brilliant rich students and brilliant poor students that was it that's it and it was like, uh, you know, coaching the 84 Olympic team. All the coach does is roll the ball out there and let them play. Right. You know, not a lot of coaching involved. Those kids are going to be fine whether Frank Gilliam teaches them or not. They know what they, they're so smart, they're going to figure it out. If they're poor, they're smart and they're going to figure it out. If they're rich, they've gone to a private school and all that stuff's already hardwired. They know how to go see the instructor, see the counselor, see the administrator. As, as you know, both of my kids, God forbid, went to the so-called elite private schools. And those parents, which and those kids, they <laughs> let's just say they understood what the system was and what the lever levers were of the system and how to work them. Absolutely. Well, uh, Chancellor Gilliam, I'm I'm really enjoying this conversation. We're going to pause here just for a moment for a message from our sponsor. But when we we get back, I'd love to pick your brain more on uh, leadership and what we can learn from you uh, leading such a massive organization in in higher ed. Get world-class professional development without leaving your home. Harvard's online certificate in school management and leadership helps you establish your legacy and deliver on your vision for your learning community. Since 2018, we're proud to have served nearly 4,000 school leaders from over 110 countries. We would be honored to welcome you to our February or June 2021 cohorts. Apply today at hgse.me forward slash leader. That's H-G-S-E dot me forward slash leader. Ruckus Maker, I want to tell you about a remote blended learning tool your school needs right now. Smart Learning Suite Online. As a teacher, you can create, store, and deliver lessons from anywhere. No smart board required. And your students can access and engage with your content from any web browser on any device. 
No matter what your classroom looks like right now, Smart Learning Suite Online offers many options for flexible learning, engaging students via collaborative workspaces and game-based activities. Smart Learning Suite Online integrates with tools like Google Classroom and Microsoft Teams, making it an easy-to-use way to create engaging content and connect with students. Learn more and get started at smarttech.com forward slash learning suite. That's smarttech.com forward slash learning suite. Today's show is brought to you by Organized Binder. Organized Binder develops the skills and habits all students need for success. During these uncertain times of distance learning and hybrid education settings, Organized Binder equips educators with a resource to provide stable and consistent learning routines so that all students have an opportunity to succeed, whether at home or in the classroom. Learn more at OrganizedBinder.com. All right, and we're back with Dr. Franklin D. Gilliam, Jr., the Chancellor of University of North Carolina at Greensboro. And I'd love to talk to the ruckus maker listening right now and maybe just share some practical leadership tips that, that you've learned over uh, your years. But I'm fascinated, too. Uh, you know, the biggest school I worked at, we had 1,800 kids, you know, uh, staff of, I don't know, maybe 70-ish, probably with auxiliary people to just over 100. So decent size for a school, right? But nowhere near 3,000 staff, 20,000 students, or, or what your reality is. And I'd love just to hear uh, what value you can offer, right? The ruckus maker listening in terms of uh, just leadership and leading at that level in a massive organization too. Well, Daniel, um, this is just one man's view, uh, but the first thing I think you have to do is be authentic. Be your authentic self. Don't try to be what you think. You know, in my case, you know, the mind's eye is, you, you know what you, if I ask you, think about a university president, just unfettered, think about one. What, you know, I, I you know, you're a cool cat and woke and all of that, but I bet you, you know, if I, if I really caught you off guard and asked, and it wasn't me asking you on the radio or on the podcast, what your mind's eye would see. I'll tell you right now, it's 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 uh, some person I've never met that lives in a big fancy house on campus. Like that's that's all I know. That's my experience, right? Right. And what do they look like? Uh, yeah, if we dig into that, you know, and what do they look like? Suit, that kind of thing. Uh, got some gray in their hair and, and that kind of deal. You know, they've, uh, they've had some experience uh, and... Uh, you know, I don't even know how they get to that position. I don't know what route that you would take. So, so, so if you go, if you look at, I, I never forget, I was interviewing for a presidency at a school that shall go unnamed. And I, they, I, I was sitting in this room. They had me, oh, they give you a chance to collect yourself thoughts before you go on in the process. And, and I was sitting in a room that had all the past presidents of this university. And for many, many, many years, for a hundred and some odd years, and I looked and I thought, hmm, this is interesting. Where would I fit on that wall? Because they were old, they're you know older white guys with white hair, and you know you're going to look at all those pictures, then you're going to see me, an ex football player, you know who doesn't mm-hmm. look like those guys. Mm-hmm. Now, the the point of this is to say, I could try to be like those guys in the pictures, right? I could say, okay, this is what people expect a university president to be like, to look like. 
But I, one of the reasons I agreed to do this is because your sort of target audience was ruckus makers. That's right. And, you know, I'm going to bring the ruckus. <laughs> it's just that simple. And I have, that's how, who I am. And I can't be somebody I'm not. And I think the biggest mistake leaders make is they, they bend to the mean. They bend to what they think people want to see and hear. And people can a, spot a phony. Um, most of the people, most of the time can, I should say. And B, then they don't have a lot of trust in what you have to say, because is that what you really mean? Or are you just saying it for public consumption? If you are authentic and they understand that it comes from your heart and from exactly who you are, I think that they can situate themselves vis-a-vis you as the leader. They know what you are. You are what you say you are. So that, that's important. And I've had two colleagues who, who died trying to be uh, somebody they weren't, trying to be everything they thought that they should be, and both ended up dying, taking mm-hmm. their own lives, because the pressure is too great. So, so that's one. Secondly, you have to have a set of values about how you want your organization to operate. And I have two fundamental conditions that have to be met. The people first have to be smart. I I think as a leader, if you're a leader who thinks you need to be the smartest person in the room, then you're probably not going to be a very successful leader, right? Because you can't have not, if you're a CEO, you have to know a lot about, a little bit about everything that's going on. And in those areas, these people think about those areas 24-7. You just can't have that kind of bandwidth. So uh, you have to understand that you're going to get the smartest people you can. Secondly, for me, I have to have the nicest people, people who are fundamentally good people, people who are, would be a good teammate, who would do things for the team because they knew it was in the interest of the team, even if it meant they had to sacrifice a little bit. Or another way to say it is, I won't hire a dash dash holes. I don't know what I can say on your show or I can't. Do whatever you want. We can bleep it out. It's up to they're, you. They're inefficient. They're inefficient, right? Because they cause a bunch of drama and people are running around trying to run. And now you've wasted two or three days of some problem that could have been solved in five minutes. Secondly, they're corrosive to the organization because they're always going to talk junk in the hallways and they're going to second guess the leadership. Uh, three, they're going to demoralize their own staff because they're either going to have to lead by fear or intimidation. And so I can't have any of that. I, as you say, I've been at this over 35 years. I can't. It doesn't work for me. Being smart isn't, isn't in and of itself enough. Right. That nice part matters. Smart and a good person. A fundamentally good person. So that's, uh, and you have to stick with that. You know, you can't make exceptions. Well, they're really smart. We should, you know, they're really brilliant. We got, well, if the person's a jerk, then they can't be on our team. Yeah, that's the worst kind, like you said. I mean, because they they can add value in terms of the work, but what they destroy through the culture, it's it's not worth the price you pay. I want to pull on the authenticity thread a little more because here you are, you're, you're staring at all these past presidents. You're asking yourself where I fit in. You know, you shared the story of... Um, well, let me just say, I don't ask myself where I fit in. Okay, okay. I really, that's my point. I don't... 
I say I'm I'm in. I'm putting myself in, and I'm, that's on me, not them. Hell with them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, that's an important point. You're choosing yourself, right? You're saying, I, you know, I belong here and that kind of thing. So, yeah. What I'm trying to get to is uh, for the ruckus maker listening. Your words were to, to resist the the forces uh, that try to bend you to the mean. Right. And I'd love, I'd love to just ask you about that. How do you sort of block out that noise and it, deal with that pressure, right? Okay, let me say two things. One of it's a caveat, a little back off that statement. Not really, but just make a caveat. Uh, the first is you have to have a thick skin is business is not personal. And, you know, you're not, I'm not running for homecoming king. I did that once in high school. I'm not doing that now. <laughs> you know, I'm not running a popularity contest. And what I tell people is, look, I'm going to be transparent about my decision making. I'm going to explain to you why I made a certain decision. You may not like the outcome, but you will not be able to say my decision was capricious or unreasonable. In other words, you could say, okay, I could see how somebody thinks that. I just don't agree. That's different than I'm just ruling willy-nilly by fiat, right? And when I said don't bend to the mean, the caveat is you can't fight every day. Right. You can't fight every day. There, because um, I have, you know, I wish, as one of our older alums told me, she loved my, my talk I gave one time, but she said, she said, your language is a little peppery, Chancellor. So I got to watch peppery language uh, when, I, when I speak here publicly. But there's, you know, you're going to have to take some stuff. You just are. It just is the nature of the world. But there's some stuff you're just not going to take. It's all good. I think pepper adds flavor. So, you know, that's, you know, and so there's just some stuff I will not eat, you know, and, but, you know, you can't fight every day either. True. You can't be the angry person. You got to pick your spots, but in your own mind, you have to know that you're not bending to the mean, you know, in your own mind, you say, okay, I'm doing these things for strategic reasons, because these are the things I want to do. I want done. It's the outcome I want. And I will, you know, I'll sacrifice and, and take some hits. But it, if it, I'm instrumental, if it gets me to where I want to go, then that's the price, price to play. Thank you for those insights. Uh, I really appreciate you, you digging into that. And, uh, you know, I could, I could talk to you all day. I really could. So um, I want to thank you for everything you've added. But last couple of questions, you know, I ask everybody these and, and I'm really looking forward to your perspective. But as a thought experiment, you know, if you could put one message on every single school marquee around the world for just one day, what would you put on that marquee? A quote by Bob Marley, who was quoting Haile Selassie, which is, emancipate yourself from mental slavery. None but ourselves can free our mind. Got it. Just a quick aside, my wife wanted a a record player, and so I got her one in we bought five records. They're all like legendary classics, right, you know, yeah. Louis Armstrong, Ella Fitzgerald, you know, uh, we love, that's like Sunday listening, but Bob Marley, uh, uh, legend was one of the first uh, records we bought as well. And then, a, you know, a few others. And now if you, what are the others? I'm, I'm curious, what others did you buy? Paul Simon, uh, Graceland is one, um, Earth, Wind and Fire, uh, one of their greatest hits actually. So that was kind of, that doesn't count maybe, <laughs> that count. one doesn't count. doesn't count. And, uh, what was the, what was the fifth one? I'm blanking for some reason. I just curious. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I just yeah, yeah. 
But I, I'd love to hear how you build your uh, school from the ground up, right? If, if you had no limitations around uh, any resources, your only limitation was your imagination, how would you build your dream school and what would be your top three priorities? Well, one of the things I would do is fundamentally rearrange the structure of the universities, and particularly American universities, which are based on, you know, what, 18th century European universities, which are based on like whatever, 15th century. I mean, we, we just have sort of rotely gone, every university is almost organized the exact same way. And uh, so I would probably be less hierarchical, more flat. Uh, I would focus less on uh, academic disciplines and more on problems, what some people call wicked problems that vex the society. And I'd organize people in, and no, this is not rocket science, I'm not the first person to say this, but that the theme would define who the scholars are, not the other way around, right? And you then find the folks who touch on that theme from any number of dimensions. And so I'd have, uh, you know, musicians uh, talking to accountants, <laughs> you know, I mean, it's it, depending on the problem. But what kind of... Uh, unlikely friends can we make? So I'd make it more thematic and problem-oriented. I'd worry less about disciplines. I'd change the reward structure in uh, universities. Uh, And if you're going to, I I think it's hard to be, it's hard in the main for a person to be a top-flight researcher and a great teacher. There are people who do it, but I would argue they are rare. And in an environment, particularly at research universities, where you value research and a person's career is determined by their research, there's not a lot of incentive to innovate in the classroom. But you may be a person, on the other hand, who doesn't want to do search, but can be brilliantly innovative in the classroom. But because there's little reward for you doing that, you're not going to do it. So I change the incentive. This is in higher ed. Not, I would change the incentive structure. And think about how do you uh, encourage innovation and knowledge production separate from how you encourage it in education. Now, everybody says, oh, your research feeds back into your teaching. And no, it doesn't. That's bull. Because your research specializes more and more and more and more as you go. And after students don't need to have some specialized, you know, some fancy modeling something or another. They, you know, I'm a political scientist. They need to know how come in the state of North Carolina, we haven't had a budget since 1819. What what processes and structures give you that result that affect all the citizens of the state? What processes, structures allow uh, a president to contest an election? And what standing do they have? You know, I mean, there's, there's real problems. What obligation does a citizen have and what obligations, rights, and responsibilities do government authorities have, particularly street government authorities, i.e. police? Is there a way you can have order and laws and at the same time be humane? I mean, those are, those are things I want to understand, not whether I can create some abstract model. Chancellor Gilliam, thank you so much for being a part of the Better Leaders, Better Schools podcast. Of everything we talked about today, what's the one thing you want a ruckus maker to remember? Be authentic.
be authentic, be true to yourself, be who you are. And if, you know, be who you are and make the curve bend to you. That's right. Thanks for listening to the Better Leaders, Better Schools podcast, Ruckus Maker. If you have a question or would like to connect, my email, daniel at betterleadersbetterschools.com or hit me up on Twitter at Alien Earbud. If the Better Leaders, Better Schools podcast is helping you grow as a school leader, then please help us serve more ruckus makers like you. You can subscribe, leave an honest rating and review, or share on social media with your biggest takeaway from the episode. Extra credit for tagging me on Twitter at Alien Earbud and using the hashtag BLBS. Level up your leadership at betterleadersbetterschools.com and talk to you next time. Until then, class dismissed. Mm-hmm.